Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Martin Nisenholtz is a true digital media pioneer. He founded perhaps the first digital marketing group at Ogilvy & Mather all the way back in 1983. But from 1995 through 2012, he was first the president of New York Times Electronic Media and then the CEO of New York Times Digital and then the Senior Vice President of Digital Operations at the New York Times Company. Martin is literally the guy who has been front and center in everything the Times has been doing in digital for the last 20 years. He headed the team that launched the first nytimes.com website back in 1995, and he has helped steer all of the Times' web and digital efforts all the way through to the present social and mobile era. Please note, we discussed several times in this conversation a great oral history resource that Martin himself has been a part of in his role as a fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. You can find this oral history project at digitalriptide.org. It's a fabulous resource, some 80-odd interviews, including some people we've spoken to on the show and plenty that we haven't yet had the pleasure to get to. So do check that out digitalriptide.org, and please enjoy this conversation with Martin Nisenholtz about the New York Times in the web era. Martin Nisenholtz, uh, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. You're welcome. My pleasure. Uh, we do kind of like to start off with a little bit of background, and so in your case, I want to go back to um, when you're in college in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, when you first encounter um, digital media, um, and in, specifically in the form of teletext. Uh, could you give me, give me the story of how you first encountered teletext and started working with it? Sure, yeah. I mean, I was a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania, a PhD student um, at the Annenberg School in 1979 um, when I got an offer to work on a project at, at what was then called the NYU Alternate Media Center. Um, and um, that later kind of morphed into the Interactive Telecommunications Program, ITP, which is a very prominent graduate program now in, in interactive media. But back then, um, a woman named Red Burns had started Alternate Media Center to do research on what was then new media. Actually, in her um, era, it was, it was her, the early era, it was cable access. Cable access. And then um, it started to morph into... Um, interactive media in the late 70s. The, the British had invented a technology called CFAX, which was, which was a teletext technology, um, and a companion technology called, called uh, Prestel, which was a videotext technology, in the mid-70s. And they had actually implemented CFAX, I think, at the BBC. And um, the National Science Foundation took a look at this and realized that it could be material in terms of, um, you know, uh, information transmission. And so funded a, a project um, at WETA, which was the public broadcast station in Washington, along with the Washington Post as the principal information provider. 
to implement a, a teletext trial, you know, a, a test of teletext in the United States, um, again, in, in the late 70s, in 1979. And so I left, I left the University of Pennsylvania essentially for a one-year project and then never went back because I just sort of fell in love with New York and, and the, the, uh, the center. And, and, and um, I started teaching as well at NYU, um, you know, in, in 1980. So um, never got my PhD, um, but um, began to learn a lot about uh, interactive, uh, interactive media, initially, initially teletext. Well, for, for the context, um, could you describe what teletext actually was? It was not computers. It was more the idea that because computer, personal computers at, in the early 80s hadn't really gone mainstream, hadn't penetrated people's homes. And so the idea well, the, was the IBM, the IBM PC hadn't been invented yet. Right. So exactly. They, so they were, you know, the, 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 obviously I, I, I began working on a, um, you know, an Apple II um, at NYU, in essence, as a, as a way to um, kind of um, um, simulate what a teletext page might look like. But teletext, very simply, really simply, you know, there were no, for the most part, there were no PCs. I mean, not, not anything approaching a mass market for personal computers. Um, and so um, everyone had a te television, right? And so a, a, a teletext decoder, which plugged into into the television, think of it almost as a kind of slideshow in the sky, where with a keypad you basically select one of the slides as it goes by. Right. So, you know, um, I want the weather. It's it's slide 50. I type 50 into the keypad, and lo and behold, the weather appears, you know, in text form with a few crude graphics on my television set. So it's a way to transmit information over the air into the vertical blanking interval of a broadcast signal, an analog broadcast signal. So that was the initial idea. Now, Videotext, which was a much more complex and, and an interesting technology, actually was a bridge between the telephone network and the television. Again, no PCs, so everyone had a television, everyone had a telephone, so if you just put this decoder in, in, in between them, you know, in essence, you could provide everyone with interactivity, um, you know, for, you know, for fairly simply. And Videotext, because it was two-way, because it was plugged into the telephone network, allowed you to do a whole lot more. So th those were the two technologies at the time, which turned into evolutionary dead ends with the growth of the personal computer. Right. As, as uh, regular listeners to this podcast know, I, I, I bang on a lot about how this popular notion that, um, you know, uh, print and legacy, you know, media and, and newspapers were caught flat-footed by digital That's technology is completely not true. I mean, there, there, no. there, there's a whole series of, of experiments that we've talked about, like the Cube service, um, the yeah. Viewtron service, all these things that are in the early 80s right. even that, that, that companies are experimenting well, no, the, with. Yeah, actually the early 80s. Um, as I say, I mean, we started working on the broadcast teletext trial at WETA, which involved the Washington Post, in 1979. So the, the, the trial went live in 1980. Um, and Videotext was pretty much over by 1986. So all of these activities, which, which by the way, involved investments of, of tens of millions of dollars in each place that they were implemented, 
um, were all over by the mid-1980s. And so, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, all of these newspaper companies were very, very, very well aware that classified advertising could be, you know, materially at risk over time and were investing heavily early on to try to figure that out. And there are all sorts of reasons why, and we, you know, we can go into why they, they may not have succeeded or didn't. Yes, succeed, uh, but, I, um, I very much, just, just briefly, uh, because, you know, you think of it now, well, obviously the PC is going to come along and the Internet's going to come along and take this over. But that at the time, that wasn't obvious. So in, in your mind, why, why did video text and, and things like that not really take off in the 80s? Well, the most amazing findings at Butron, which was Knight Ritter's trial, and Knight Ritter, by the way, um, which which later sold itself to McClatchy as you know, in, in, I think in 2006, um, and so went out of, in essence went out of business. Although its newspapers continue to operate under McClatchy, um, he, he discovered very early on that users users wanted communication out of out of interactivity. They, they basically did not. I mean, reading text on the screen was was something they do, but not not certainly very much. And and all of the time spent online was spent in social media, what we today call social media, whether it was email or, or bulletin boards, forums, things like that. And every service that was up by 1982 or 83, most people knew that the, that the principal use of, of interactive media was going to be in communications. That's, that, that's what Steve Case discovered you know, pretty early on and, and ran with, and that's why I think AOL did so well. But... but that was one reason why AOL did so well, or America Online back then. But, you know, the, the fact is that the newspapers knew that by 1983, 84, something like that. And um, if, if they, they know they, that, if they know that, why didn't they act on that? If they because have that they data. weren't in that business. I mean, their, their view was, I mean, they concluded, they concluded by 1985 or 86 that, you know, the thing wasn't really being used to read a newspaper and therefore they they weren't they weren't very much interested in it because they weren't in the business of social media now looking back you know 30 years you can say that was incredibly stupid um they could have been america online very easily um they knew they knew what the basic drive consumer drivers were but they weren't in that business and so you know they um you know they they uh they moved on they shut it down um, for for you personally, uh, uh, in the midst of this, um, you end up at Ogilvy and Mather, the the advertising firm, and you start um, an inter- interactive advertising group there. Uh, was it specifically to target this, you know, supposed future of of teletext and video text and things like that? Yeah, I was developing product for the WETA tri- for the WETA trial. I was one of a handful of people in the country who knew what teletext was at that point. Um, and it's come full circle. Now I'm a handful of, well, now I'm among a handful of people who know what teletext is 35 years <laughs> later. But in any event, um, uh, at that point, you know Jerry Levin, who um, had in, you know had played a material role in inventing HBO, and was running Time Inc. by then, um, wanted to you know deploy teletext in a full six megahertz cable channel. So tons and tons. Think of the, the world's biggest slideshow if you extend the metaphor. And um, he went to Ogilvy because Ogilvy was the agency, I believe, for um, Sports Illustrated and Time Magazine or two of the big Time Inc. magazines. And he said, look, this is going to be advertiser-supported. You guys need to understand this. 
and a creative director named Jerry McGee um, found me in Washington. I, I had, in addition to working on WETA, um, I realized very early on that in order for this to work, we needed to get artists and writers and, and animators and people like that involved. So I wrote a grant to the National Endowment for the Arts, which was matched by the Department of Communication in Canada, and began to put artists online, um, including Keith Haring, by the way. It was uh, the only, um, I think, digital art that he ever did, hmm. um, he did for this project. Does that still um, exist anywhere that we can see? I have slides, but I don't have hmm. the, the discs disappeared into um, Ogilvy somewhere, and, you know, they were the old 8-inch floppy disks um, that played in this technology called, it was actually imported from Canada called Teladon on an old deck, on an old um, deck machine. Um, it was a mini computer, actually, and so it used big floppy. Boy, you if, know. You, um, if you could resurrect even the slides or something, I, I bet that would be of great interest to a lot of people. Well, I have a slide. I mean, I can, I can maybe get a C-print made of the slide mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. send it to you. I'm not sure who does that these days. But anyway, um, so, so that, um, that uh, exhibit um, was going on in Washington, and, and so McGee somehow through one of his people discovered me there and brought me in and said, you know, we've got this job. Um, can you help? I said, of course, you know, I mean, I'm happy to do that. And so I was still working for New York university and I began to, um, consult for Ogilvy. And about six months later, the agency came to me and said, you know, um, you know, we think this is important. Um, do you think you would want to come work for us? I said, well, only if I can start my own agency and they sort of looked at me like I was a little crazy because you know there were no interactive agencies then certainly not there were a couple of there were may have been one or two kind of job shops that were out there working for you know um, I, I don't know if working for who but um, th this was the first creative development agency in a large you know advertising agency in the world um, and and so we started Ogilvy Interactive, which at that time was called the Interactive Marketing Group, but ultimately became Ogilvy Interactive, um, in um, in March of 1983. Um, and I hired two people: one, the designer um, from um, the Teletext trial in Washington, which which had ended, a guy named Bill Norton, and uh, the second person was a, a woman from um, Florida who. Um, uh, was going to be my, you know, kind of my account person. So the three of us started Ogilvy Interactive in March of 83. And so over the next decade or so, does that evolve into experiments with, with other digital media things? Like, oh, yeah, for course. example, the online services, CompuServe, AOL, that sort, yeah. or, or specifically Prodigy, which, which as, as listeners know, launched from day one with ads and things like that. Yeah, that's right. So Prodigy... Um, yeah, it's a, I, I mean, I, I think it's a bit of a myth that Wired created the first, first ban, created the first banner ad because Prodigy, I mean, obviously created the first banner ad on the web right. because the web didn't exist when Prodigy was first started. But um, Prodigy was doing banner ads well before right, right at the bottom of, of every single screen that loaded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, I mean, you can blame them or not blame them, but they were, they, they were, you know. So. Um, yeah, so, but, but a lot of the work we were doing, I mean, remember Compaq had by then, had by, I think by 86 or 87, maybe even before that, had a pretty luggable machine, and we were starting to do Salesforce 
um, automation projects. I mean, we started to get much more into, you know, programming than just simply, um, you know, the, the creation of graphical elements and, you know, sort of presentation modules for, for video tech services. Because video tech ended by 86, and at, at that point we started to, to, to work on, um, you know, uh, other online services, including Prodigy and America Online, but also we were doing a lot of work for public, you know, for, for kiosks and other public location media, including automated teller machines, which, you know, were at that time pretty, pretty crude. So um, all of that stuff was fair game in the, in the mid-1980s. So how do you get involved um, at the New York Times? I believe you, um, you joined them in 1995, um, go ahead. Tell tell me the story. How you get involved there? Well, I mean, I so I, I mean, it, the the story is that I, I wanted to um, um, develop a much more robust engineering capability than Ogilvy was interested in doing in 1994, and I had a job offer at Ameritech, which was a baby bell in Chicago, and at that time they were. Um, you know, they, they, they had deregulated the, f the phone companies and they were building a cable system in Chicago and it was a very advanced cable system. And so one of the projects that we had been working on at Ogilvy was AT&T's um, joint venture with Viacom in Cerritos, California, where we were developing, you know, video on demand services and other very early versions of, of interactive television, what today you would call regular television, but back then you know, because you could select a movie and play games and stuff like that. It was called interactive television. Anyway, um, th 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 that's exactly what, you know, what Ameritech wanted to build at scale in Chicago. And so they hired me to program this, this system. And I realized when I got there that I really didn't like working in the confines of a, a big telephone company. But, but you know, it, it wasn't terrible or anything like that. I mean, it was, I was fine. But when the New York Times called to say that they wanted to start a, an interactive division, um, um, it was pretty intriguing for me because I missed New York. I had always loved, absolutely loved the New York Times from the time I was, you know, a college student. I was reading it, so um, I leaped at the opportunity to be, you know, the founder of of the Times's online online division. So I, you know, I joined the Times in in mid 1995 um, um, to lead the team that you know, that started the website. Well, but when, when you get hired, it's not necessarily to start a website, right? It's just to do whatever they're going to do in digital, right? No, I mean, I think that, that uh, it was clear that, the, that by then we needed to start a website. I mean, there, were, there, there, was an AOL, there was a kind of crude AOL service called At Times, which I really hated, Right, um, which um, uh, Rich uh, Meislin has already provided us with screenshots, which I've shared before, but I'll, I'll put in the show notes as well. Yeah, so so Rich Rich had had been working from the newsroom side to convince the paper that we really needed to do something much more aggressive. And I mean, Rich was Rich is a very close friend of mine. He's somebody who, you know, was instrumental in in helping us, you know, get this thing started. But uh, and then later became he worked. He worked um, for me as 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 editor of the website. So, but 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 you know, w well before that, um, you know, there there were there were um, 
uh, folks at the times um, developing prototypes and and um, and so when I got there, it was it was pretty clear that we we wanted to develop a website. I had a very different vision of what the website should be coming in cold. I mean, my, my view was that, I mean, my reference point coming in was Yahoo. Um, and I felt pretty strongly that the Times could develop that kind of service, um, you know, with, with, without too much trouble. And in in terms of being a, being a guide to the web? like ex- Yeah. I, I mean, I felt like at that time, I really felt like, you know, the, the, a, a guide to the web was was what the times i didn 't like the idea at the time of repurposing the New York Times on the web I, I just didn 't like that idea. I told arthur that I, I said you know that there wasn 't really going to be much demand for reading the paper on the screen i mean you 've got to go back and think about how slow the bandwidth was at that point and and how crude the monitors were i mean it was very, very hard to read a screen and download information at that point. Very low resolution. So I, and I, I yeah. felt like Yahoo was very well optimized for, you know, speed and, and, um, and currency. And I just, I just thought that a, a Times branded version of that with editors, you know, really picking the best stuff out of the internet would, would be a, a, a very good idea. And so, um, but I realized very quickly that, you know, that's not what the, the folks at the Times wanted to do, and so we set about creating the best, you know, the best website that we could that reflected the journalism of the New York Times. And I think, in retrospect, they were right, and I was wrong. I mean, I don't think that I, I, I think, and re- let me put it this way: let me give myself a little bit more credit. Than sure, that. sure. I think if we had executed properly, we would have been able to build something much more meaningful than a newspaper website. Okay, but I think getting from where we were as a culture to doing that was an unrealistic expectation on my part. In, in fact, a quite insane expectation. And so um, I think we did exactly the right thing at the end, which was to leverage the journalism of the New York Times. But the seminal moment was in mid-1995 when I joined, and I, and I, you know, I remember saying that, okay, we can put this website up, but we really need to build an engineering team to... Um, you know, to experiment with with uh, with something more interesting, and and at that time, the CFO, the company CFO, just wouldn't fund it. Um, she, I'm, she, I'm, let me interrupt for a second because I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I want to get into some of the nitty gritty here. So when when you do come on board and and all right, we're gonna we're gonna put the New York Times on the web. Um, where where does the engineering and software talent come from? Is it internal at the New York Times? Did you have to hire outside people? Like, how did you put your team together? Well, there was a fellow named Steve Luciani who had been working. Um, he was one of the folks helping to prototype, and he was a technical guy. And he, was, he came from inside, and he, had hi- he hired a guy named Ben, um, I think as a freelancer initially, and um, the two of them, you know, I mean, we're not talking about rocket science here. You know, um, the two of them, um, in essence, created this prototype. Um, and, and um, you know, from there we just built, you know, we built a, a fairly uh, rudimentary website to begin with. 
Right. Actually, let me step in again for for the nitty gritty. This is way before the era of um, you know uh, CMSs, con- content management systems. Oh, yeah. So, so are you guys just literally hard coding HTML and just throwing it up? Like, explain to me that that process. Well, yeah. I mean, um, the the the, the homepage of the New York Times um, for a fairly long time was actually a, 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 a GIF. I mean, it was a hand coded graphical image, and the reason that we did that was because we we felt that. Um, um, we, we really felt that the, um, the, the Times had a certain look and feel, a Timesian look and feel. And we, I think that was one of the things that, that we, we did right. And I think that was part of what Rich helped bring to the table, which was a real design sensibility. Um, and, you know, e- even guys like Steve Jobs were very respectful of that, um, um, which is why, you know, a few years later, I ended up on the stage with him to, you know, to 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 do the iPad. But um, that that um, you know that notion of um, graphical integrity was very important. So um, I I frankly don't remember when the first CMS was implemented. Um, well, you you guys might have just hacked remember. it together, hacked it together yourselves, just as needs be, I suppose. Yeah, at the very beginning, but not too long after that, and it might even be, have been roughly around the launch, you know, a, a, a couple of CMSs um, came into being. I mean, I just don't remember the dates, unfortunately. No problem, no problem. Uh, one other nitty-gritty question. That research. I mean, and, and you could probably ask Rich. He, he might know. He might remember. Okay. Um, one other nitty-gritty question, which would be easier to remember, possibly, is what was the editorial flow like? So when you launch, are you essentially launching, uh, I guess, the morning edition like once a day? Does, does the, does the, do the stories go to the print editors first and then you guys get it at the end, at the very last? Or how, do, how does it, when it launches, what is that editorial flow like? Well, there was a big fight initially because another part of the company – had been licensing um, the product to um, third parties. So there were, there, as I recall, there were two kinds of licenses. There were licenses for archival purposes to companies like LexisNexis. And then there was a so-called 24-hour product that was licensed, I believe, to Dow Jones News Retrieval, of all people. Um, and um, th- that, that division essentially went to war with us and said, you know, if you guys put this stuff up on the web, um, you know, you're going to cannibalize our business. And there was a moment, and, you know, I mean, uh, Rich will remember that, others will remember it. There was a moment when I wasn't sure we were going to be able to do it. Um, Actually, um, Arthur Sulzberger had to um, petition his father to actually allow us to do that, and he successfully did that. Um, and so Arthur managed to push it through, but there was a compromise where we were only allowed to publish a set number of stories, and we had to wait until, I believe, until the file went to Dow Jones. We couldn't publish before them. Mm. And so we, had to, we, had, we, we, we could publish X number of stories by midnight and then Y number of stories by 6 a.m. It was, it was crazy. Um, 
And, and that was all to keep, you know, that was all in a compromise with this other division of the company that was fighting its, the fighting to keep the, you know, to keep its customers happy. Um, hard to believe today, I know. Now, and, and, and we didn't win any rights on the archival side. So, you know, one of my huge, and I've said this publicly many times, one of my huge, um, it's not so much, I'm not sure what I could have done about it, but regrets is that, you know, we had the largest news archive in the world. And it was clear to me, I mean, I had been working in this area already for 15 years, right? So I knew a lot about the way people used interactive services. And search was like a main thing, right? I mean, that's what they did. So, I mean, it's, you know, that's, that's what, you know, in part, that's what, you know, Yahoo was based on. So, so, I mean, I wanted to create a really great search engine at the times, and we weren't allowed to do that because, um, you know, LexisNexis, you know, we didn't, we, they didn't want to interfere with that relationship, you know, with, with the news archive. Um, so, I, let me interrupt one last time um, because I want to, I want to move on to one thing, but you made me think of something. I'm super curious about when culturally, this is definitely jumping ahead. Um, the New York Times online division moved to like the real time news thing. Uh, obviously, that probably wasn't early on. Do you have any memory of that? Like, it, it, you know, in, in the sense no, that we, we wanted to, no, no, we wanted to do that from the beginning. Okay. I mean, we all were watching Yahoo News. I mean, Reuters had licensed itself. Re, you know, Reuters owned a small piece of Yahoo, and right. I was watching. I was watching Reuters implement. You know, a really fast. I mean. ASCII text, you know, and, and narrowband communications go hand in hand, right? So, you know, I was, I was watching Reuters, which is a wire service, you know, continually update itself on Yahoo, and I was very, very um, anxious to do something. And so um, fairly early on, we managed to get, we managed to start to get um, uh, access to the AP, and, and, and I think, you know, that was the initial, um, the, the the initial continuous news. So but you the you, Times never, you recognize me, the Times, very early on that that it is going to be as soon as news happens, it's got to be up there online as soon as we can. No, that 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 the, the AP did that. Okay. Wire service right. did that. The New York Times didn't do that. The New uh, York well, Times was on the twenty four hour cycle. Right. Well, that's what I'm trying to d- determine. Okay. Is, so, but I, you know. The, the folks at the interactive division knew that that was important, and so that's what I'm saying yes. Yeah, so so what happened is um, we we actually um, roughly 1998, maybe 99, but we acquired EquityInTheStreet.com, and the street as a financial news site was running, you know, a very a very heavily updated, quick news service, and so. Um, you know, at that point, we sent a couple of editors down there to learn how to do it, and they came back and started the continuous news desk. It was called the CND, the continuous news desk, which, which um, you know, um, evolved, you know, obviously over time into, you know, real time, not real time, but you know, the the updated news service. So, um, but that was that was a little later on. I mean, we we launched the the full website. We launched a um, um, kind of a practice site where we were exercising the publishing system 
in I believe in in um, October of um, ninety five during that Pope's visit. I was right? going to say it was um, the, the Pope was visiting. I think. Yeah, and then we shut it down, and and then the full website came up in January of ninety six, and so I'd say continuous news. It took us another three years probably to. Um, convinced the company that we really needed to do continuous news. But in the interim, we were doing, um, you know, we were, we were using, we were working with the AP. Yeah, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm asking a lot of people when, when that cultural shift happened to the, to the continuous news. But um, switching gears back to the launch, um, you launch free, um, it's not a paywall, but you do have to register, so it's ad-supported. I have to imagine that there had to be conversations about a subscription service or something like yeah, that. Yeah, there so, were. Okay, go ahead. I mean, it's my fault. I take complete responsibility for it. When I walked into the company, there were three business models, um, and all of them were based on a very limited amount of content. It was like 20 stories a day for $9.95, $14.95, and $19.95. Those were the three price points per month. And I said, this, this is insane. This, you know, we're, we're, we're never going to be able to scale this business and, and actually create habit around it, create loyal usage around it. I mean, I said, at some point, we absolutely are going to want to charge for this, but it's going to be, you know, in the future when the product is ready, when the product is is you know, ready to be paid for. Um, right now, it sucks. And also, you know, you can't, you, you're up against CNN, you're up against, you know, with, this wasn't a newspaper business, it was a website. So we were up against Yahoo News, CNN, MSNBC was launching, Pathfinder. all these really good news services. Mm -hmm. um, plus, there were newspapers out there that were doing a good job, like the, 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 the Nando people, which was the News and Observer in Raleigh. And, and, the, and the Mercury um, Center. The Mercury Center was very good, and, and um, the, the Washington Post had, had launched something. Boston had launched Boston.com. So, you know, it was like there was, a, there was a crap load of competition on the web back then. So, you know, just because we were the New York Times and we're going to put 20 stories up didn't mean anything. It didn't mean – so I, I, I basically – and my team was very, very solidly behind me on this. I mean, everybody who knew anything about – the, the, the environment at that point knew that we needed to launch this way. Now, it's true, the journal had always wanted to charge, but my, my view of that was that the journal had to charge because they were very concerned about cannibalization of the print product, and um, we just had a fundamentally different value proposition. Um, and, you know, as it turns out, I mean, you fast forward a couple of decades, and we have more paying subscribers now than the Wall Street Journal. So, you know, I'm just saying um, this notion that the genie couldn't be put back in the bottle and all this other nonsense turned out to be just untrue. Um, the, uh, you, you say that your, your team was completely engaged. I'm curious about the institutional support from management, but also maybe the support from, you know, editorial and, and other places at the times. Like, so when, when you launch, what is the institutional support? What is the thinking inside the company about what you're doing? Well, look, I think that there were, there were folks who felt that, um, you know, putting the times up on the web for free was probably not the right decision. Um, but management was very supportive of, of, of our vision. They, they were very supportive of the fact that we needed to build an audience in order to get 
you know, an advertising business started, which we did. Um, that and and remember, I um I I did two things that that I think helped. One was to charge internationally, which was more, really just an experiment. I mean, I you know, you're you're, you're, you're you, we I, that, there was no New York Times available internationally, so I thought, well, geez, let's let's see whether we can you know get some subscribers mm-hmm. internationally. So we charged for international usage, but much much more importantly. I had realized from having worked at Ogilvy for all those years that the data was going to be really important. And so having a kind of opt-in permission marketing scheme, which, which to be fair, Wired had already tried and failed at, right? They, they tried registration and, and brought it down pretty quickly because people just refused to, you know, to, to, to sign up. Um, um, I, I felt that you know, the Times had a strong enough brand to, to, to attract users in that way. And in fact, you know, that was, that was right. And we, we started to develop a very good database. Um, so we had email contacts, we had demographic data on our users. And obviously this is well before, decades before, um, you know, uh, highly sophisticated ad tech. So, you know, the fact that we could go to market with, um, you know, with, with some level of targeting and some knowledge of, of who our users were and, and what they wanted um, was really valuable to advertisers. Um, and so the advertising business, um, you know, took off pretty quickly. Um, now, you know, obviously once you started to get into 97, 98, and the dot-com boom, you know, all hell broke loose. But, you know, that... Um, that that's a whole different story. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that that changed a lot of stuff. But you know, pr- prior to that, when it was still a somewhat rational market, you know, advertisers liked what we had to say, and we were growing very very quickly, um, which was great. And I think the newsroom was really the at least key parts of the newsroom were really encouraged by that because I, I think that you know people like Tom Friedman really liked the fact that all of a sudden, you know, they were, I was showing these guys that, hey, we have X number of readers in, in you know, um, Saudi Arabia and in, in, you know, in places that the Times just never reached before. And, you know, as, the, as, as sort of the, you know, the foreign correspondents and, and you know, the, the, the columnists who were really interested in writing about, you know, global issues, they really liked, um, you know, uh, the web from the very earliest days. So Friedman and, and Nick Kristoff, people like that, you know, took to it quickly. Um, and and I, I think the fact that it was free allowed us to build that kind of constituency in the newsroom. And in fact, that's exactly what Arthur says in the Riptide interview. Because ultimately, while I made the recommendation to uh, you know, to to take the, the the website out for free, it was Arthur who had to approve it and get behind it. And I think his you know his view is that we never would have gotten the kind of newsroom buy-in we got without it. So um, you know, you could you can reference the Riptide. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Uh, we'll 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 definitely talk about that when we end. Um, one more bit of context. Um, you know, even before you get into the the madness of the dot com era. What was what was the size of the team that you have in maybe ninety six ninety seven and what is what is this what is the size of the team is it four or five people what are, what are you looking at 
No, it was more than that. Okay. Um, I remember, you know, um, <laughs> it's interesting given how large, you know, the Times is now. But, I mean, I, I remember, you know, um, I think it was the second budget year. So it would have been sometime in the fall of 1996, maybe, or maybe even earlier than that. Um, there was a guy in charge of the company who will remain nameless. And I went to him and, and I said, um, not, not Arthur, of course, a business guy. And I, I mm-hmm. said, um, you know, at, at, at some point I hope to have 40 people. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you will, you, you will never have 40 people. <laughs> and so, you know, um, certainly in the 96 time frame, and again, you know, others like Rich may remember better, um, but I, I'd say, you know, I'd say something in the uh, 25 range, maybe 20, 25. I have a, a champagne bottle from the night that we launched um, and everybody signed it um, and everybody was basically there. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think there are probably 20 names on it, something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just briefly talk about how in the in the dot com era later in the 90s, um, there is a movement to to spin off the the your team the digital team and give it its own independence and and there's even talk of an ipo which doesn't actually ever happen um when when that starts to happen are you then given the more resources are you then given the the independence and the engineers and things like that well not initially i mean what happened is that um you know it 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 became a at a certain point in time, a couple of things became apparent. One is that, um, particularly then, that um, you know this web thing was probably more serious than people had initially thought. Um, it was very, very difficult to keep people, particularly technical people, because they were going to, to companies for stock options, um, and 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 you know we didn't we, we, we couldn't you know we couldn't provide that. But I think also um, the, the CEO of the company at the time, a guy named Russ Lewis, had read Clay Christensen's book, The Innovator's Dilemma. And mm-hmm. I think he thought, he, felt, he thought two things at that point. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, but m- my recollection is that he, he thought two things. One, he thought that without getting independence for us, we would be forever trapped under the, um, under the foot of you know, the, the big New York Times. And, you know, the innovator's dilemma essentially outlines why that takes place. It's not because people are stupid or even have wrong ideas. It's because the, the current model is so much better financially than the new one. And, you know, so every, every, every fiber in a business person's being fights to keep that current model going. <clears throat> so he, he wanted to create a separate business in order to really um, let, it, let us you know, let us do what we needed to do to compete in the marketplace. So that was rationale number one. But rationale number two is he knew it was going to cost money to do that, and I don't think he wanted to pay for it all himself. He wanted to use the kind of irrational exuberance in the marketplace to have the public pay for some of it. And that wasn't a new idea. I mean, Barnes & Noble had already gone out with BNN.com, and ZD had gone out with ZDNet, and, and those CEOs um, – the CEOs of those businesses 
were sort of my comps. In other words, you know, in terms of how much stock I was going to get and how much I was going to get paid and stuff like that. So there were others out there. Disney had done it, I think, with Starwave, who had already gone out. So we hired Goldman Sachs, and we, um, you know, we 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 decided to do it with a tracking stock, and um, we um, we were rehearsing the roadshow in in April of 2000 when the market crashed, and you know the bankers went away and never came back. So that um, that ended, but you know we remained an independent division for five more years, um, and you know there were very intense. Uh, very intense debates in the company at that time, and it got personal. I mean, people were very upset that we were um, that we were being cut loose from the mothership, um, and um, you know, I can understand that. Um, it was it was a it was a loss of control. It was a, in a sense, you know, I think people were feeling like, well, why should this group of people kind of be, be sort of own the future when you know when we're working so hard to make all the money. And I mean, it was, it, and, you know, it was a perfectly understandable human behavior. Uh, a couple of things from your uh, digital riptide uh, interview that I wanted to hit on real quick, uh, both around the, the dot-com bubble busting, what, what you call the winter, what I call the nuclear winter. <laughs> but um, one of the first things you say, you mentioned sort of offhandedly that, and I remember this too, that there was sort of a sense from, old media, old business, whatever, in 2001-ish, that there was, like, relief that, okay, we're glad this fad is over. You know what yeah. I mean? But, yeah, there was that. Go ahead. There was that. I mean, you said it. I don't – okay, yeah. there was a sense, I think, from a lot of quarters that um, that it was just a, a fad, like you say. And, and um, at that point, what I remember – and, again, we were still an independent division, and we had – just because we were independent didn't mean that we didn't have really good connections back to the, the, the New York Times. And one of my, to even today, one of my best, best friends from the company was running corporate development back then. And the two of us started to look at, um, you know, uh, at some of the, 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 the companies that were out there and say sort of, you know, hey, if we could get CNET for $250 million, isn't that a really good, good idea? Mm -hmm. um, but the only person, I mean, to be fair to Russ, who, who didn't want to do it at the time, and I think he would have been crucified by the street had he done it, I mean, the only person who was doing it at that point was Barry Diller. Um, everybody else was running for the hills. And Barry picked up, I mean, he picked up TripAdvisor for like $60 million. Right, and, and Match and you know, all those other things. Match, yeah. yeah. I mean, he just went on, a, he went on a, like a buying spree and, you know, billions of dollars later i mean he was probably right <laughs> well uh part two of that then though again this is something that i bang on a lot about on on these episodes is that despite the nuclear winter it's not like people stopped using the internet and i think you guys saw that at, at, at new york times online it's not like people stopped coming to the website yeah i would draw two curves right i mean one curve was the nasdaq market which looked like an a cardio, you know, an electrocardiogram, you know, sort of up and down. <laughs> and then the, the other one was this kind of um, linear growth curve that, that the nytimes.com was. So, you, you know, you, you could basically draw the, the times curve straight through that um, electrocardiogram. And, you know, you, 
you wouldn't think that there was anything going on other than just more and more and more growth. The, the, the consumer never missed a beat, never, not, not for a single month. In fact, um, you know, some of our biggest, and I, you know, look, it's, 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 it's the news business, so you, know, you can expect this sort of thing, but September 11th, 2001 was obviously you know, a, a, a lot of usage that day, right? I mean, that was, in a sense, a day when, when the web, you know, because the thing happened early in the morning, right? This terrible tragedy took place. After you know, the newspapers the get morning, delivered, right? right yeah. Post. So the papers were already, you know, the papers didn't have anything. So everything was happening on television and on the Internet. And, um, you know, we went up with a kind of a graphics-free, because it was being so heavily loaded that we had to, to really skinny it down. Um, and it was a huge day, right, in terms of usage. And, you know, similarly, other news events would drive that kind of usage. And that has nothing to do with, you know, the NASDAQ price of, you know, uh, of, of Yahoo or any other Internet company. So it, it just the consumer was always, you know, the best indicator of, of the strength of, of um, you know, the business. I um, I do. We'll end with um, um, bringing the story into into the modern era, as it were. But I do want to make one more point that occurred to me when I was listening to the the digital riptide interviews, where um, you guys talk about. Um, and I will link to to your interview there, so uh, people will be able to check this out. Uh, you guys do talk about the decision to go free. We're going to come back to that for a second. And I just wanted to comment and then and see what you think of this that you guys come to the conclusion that it's sort of inevitable or or you come to that conclusion um and I wanted to point out that you know when we've looked at e commerce and things like that, you know people e commerce was slow to gain adoption because again, early on, people didn't trust their credit cards online like actually e commerce if you look at the numbers, has a slow growth trajectory that doesn't really start to take off till ninety eight so when you launch in 96, it's not like you could have done pay. But then the other thing that I, I wanted to to point out is that, remember, the culture of the web at the time, uh, 95, 96, it really grows out of that shareware, freeware era. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's a little hippie. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I spoke with Tim Brady, uh, employee number three at Yahoo. Even when they turned on ads at Yahoo, they were completely mm -hmm. afraid that they had put a dagger in their audience, much less mm -hmm. they knew they could never ask their audience to pay. So I don't think that at, at that time you could have ever asked um, people to pay for anything on the web, much less content, much less news. What? Uh, just let me know what you think about that. I think that's wrong. Um, I think we, we uh, I have a very different view. Okay. I mean, obviously, there were significant, significant hurdles, and you've mentioned them, okay? Mm -hmm. But um, the biggest hurdle in my view, I mean, I'm, I, you know, if you trace my career all the way back to when I was a 24-year-old, you know, at, at, you know, at working on the, the, the WETA trial. I mean, my love is product. I mean, I, I focused intently on that and the consumer. And um, I just didn't think we had a good enough product to charge for. Okay. The fact that it was the journalism of the New York Times was totally beside the point, from my opinion. in my opinion. It was, it was just not robust enough, regardless of the journalism. The user experience was not robust enough to demand 
um, payment for. And I felt that we needed to build an audience first. And in order to do that, at that time with that product, it needed to be free. It's that simple. The Wall Street Journal, you know, let, let, let's be clear. AOL had been charging, now it was charging a kind of bundled ISP, mm-hmm. you know, it was an ISP in addition to being, in, you, know, a, you know, a service, but AOL had been charging from, you know, the mid-80s. The, the, the teletext and videotext guys were charging, um, and the Wall Street Journal was charging. The Wall Street Journal had a, had a you know, proprietary, not site, but a proprietary service up with AT&T Interchange, or, yeah, Interchange, um, you know, prior to, to its website, but then when its website went up, it, start, it was charging. Um, I just felt like the Times brand needed to stretch its wings on the web, and it could only do that by being free for a period of time. Um, and, you know, the criticism of that has always been that, you know, you, you, you kind of set in motion this journalism should be free thing, but I didn't set that in motion. In fact, that was in motion when we launched the Times at the time. I mean, every other website except for WSJ was free, and every other, and every other, other general news website, I should say. And, and at that time, this is the pre-Murdoch Wall Street Journal, the journal was a business-to-business product. It was not a general news product like it is today. It was pure B2B. Um, and so, you know... I felt at the time that CNN and Yahoo News, even though the journalism clearly isn't as strong as the New York Times journalism, was was delivering a much superior user experience because they were current, because they understood breaking news and they understood that narrowband services required, you know, somewhat different sensibility in terms of article length and graphical usage and stuff like that. So... I think we did the right thing in hindsight, and um, you know, um, the journal probably did the right thing for its business. But in essence, what you're saying is, is that you didn't feel at the time that you could essentially charge for what was a, a beta product. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, again, I'm going to reference the the digital riptide um, interview, which which I'll link to again. Um, to, to bring it up to the modern era, you mentioned that the, the Times has been very good at always trying out a lot of things and a lot of different strategies. And into into this decade, you know, we're now um, not in a paywall model, but in like this metered uh, paywall model. And, you know, just this year, the Times, you know, announced that it had it had reached uh, one million digital subscribers, I think, in August. Um and actually, even today, there was a Neiman Lab uh, article that talks about the, the, the new this year's New York Times digital strategy memo that it says, you know, it has a tone of confidence of what it called budding confidence or whatever. So I'm not going to ask you to prognosticate about like what the health of, of the Times and its online strategy and all that stuff is. But I'm I just wanted to get a sense of do you do you still feel like the Times is still a uh, willing to experiment and willing to go in all sorts of directions to find out what works. Well, I, I think the times is committed to being a great journalistic institution. And, and as Dean Baquet said recently to having more reporters, you know, out there than anyone else, um, that's its business. And again, if you listen to Arthur's interview, the thing I ask him at the end is, you know, 
really what are I, I, essentially I ask him, you know, if people aren't willing to pay, is this, it, it, you know, is, is this it? And I think he basically says, yeah, I mean, we're in the quality journalism business and, and that's the business we're in. Um, I think that, that, that the Times is willing to experiment with those guardrails in mind. It, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not going to go and do stuff that, unless I'm very wrong, radically move away from um, high-quality journalism. In fact, on the contrary, I think it's, it's over time been putting more and more and more arrows into that, you know, uh, behind that. And so, you know, experiments like the, the type we were running back, you know, 20 years ago, like acquiring a buzz and acquiring about.com, I mean, whatever you think of those deals, um, they were done to um, um, significantly um, go beyond um, the, the delivery of high-quality journalism. And I think we're, we're now at a time when we are you know, intently focused on delivering high-quality journalism, and it's working. And so I don't see um, you know, any, any real need at this point um, uh, to go outside of those rails. But, you know, um, so others may. Others may have a different view. Oh, one, one last question, I promise. Um, but this, again, references um, uh, Digital Riptide, which we'll, we'll talk about before we end. Um, you, I, I believe it's Eric Schmidt that talks about this idea that what maybe the news industry, the content industry, one of the big problems was that from the beginning they didn't value the engineer, the software engineer. Correct. Do you do you think that that's changing? Does does the content industry value the engineer more today? Um. Yeah, I I think that the the content industry values engineering much more today. Um. But again, within the guardrails of what the industry knows how to do and, and can do. Um, Google um, has a much more adventuresome, um, um, I mean, it, it's got, let's, be, let's be fair, I mean, it's got the most amazing business model, at least to date, that I think any company on earth has ever had. You know, I tend to amazing, agree with that, yes. With amazing growth margins and just... I mean, they just, they just, they do very, very well, as Eric says himself in the interview. Um, and so, you know, they have a, 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 a capability of going and doing stuff that nobody else or very few others can, can reasonably do. Um, but I think he's, he's correct in saying that um, the innovation point um, in, in technology is engineering and, um, and, that I I think is probably still to a very large extent um, under leveraged by the media industries. Well, um, Martin, as we've as we've mentioned countless times, uh, Martin is not I believe with the day to day with the New York Times anymore. But you still consult, is that right? On on occasion, yeah. Okay, so um, but what amongst the things that he's been doing since he left the Times? Uh, is this uh, oral history project sort of like this one uh, called uh, Riptide? Uh, the website is digitalriptide.org. I will link to it in the show notes. 
they have 80 plus, I think, oral history yeah. interviews um, yeah. th- that are fantastic. Uh, I highly recommend them. Uh, they, they, they focus on this intersection of the web and, and uh, journalism and media and the, the clash of the two, the, the evolution of the two. It's, it's just fantastic stuff. So I, I highly recommend that. And, and Martin, also, if there's anything else that you're involved in, what, what are you up to today? And is there anything that you want to you talk about? Well, I mean, my, I, I, I teach, uh, I'm a professor at, at Boston University, so if there are any BU students listening, you should take my course. It's called Media Disruption. Mm-hmm. And um, I also sit on, you know, several boards and, um, you know, have, have a number of consulting clients. But, um, uh, so I'm, I'm a busy guy, but I'm, I'm uh, you know, a, a fairly free agent at this point. Um, and you know, at this stage in my life, that's what I like. But I, um, I, I as a, as in a sense, as a profession, I'm now an academic, which is an interesting change. Well, uh, Martin Nisenholtz, thank you so much for not only remembering that, but for laying that all out for us. And um, it, it, it was just fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast. Please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.